Before we get into this episode, we have a quick favor to ask you. If you love our show, please scroll down to the review section of your favorite podcast platform and leave us a five-star rating. If you have a few more seconds, please also leave us a review telling us what you like most about our show. We read every single one of these and we appreciate them so much. This will also help us grow and get into the ears of those who love true crime and food as much as you do. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You're listening to Unsavory, where true crime meets food. Welcome, everyone. I'm Becca. And I'm Sarah. And you're listening to Unsavory. This week, we actually have a very special episode because it's our one-year anniversary. Yeah. Can you believe it's been a year? Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary, Sarah. I mean, I can and I can't. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The fact that we've done, what episodes is this? Like our 22nd? 24th. (laughs) No, wait. I think it might be the 22nd or 23rd. (laughs) Hey, it's your editor here. It's the 22nd episode. Good work, Becca. But the fact that we've done more than 20 episodes is wild. Yeah. It's wild. And yeah, I feel like, I mean, it's also a very spooky time of year. We have mm-hmm. Halloween coming up this week. Yeah. So if you want a spooky mm-hmm. episode, you can go listen to our very first episode, which is about Halloween one. and candy tampering. It's an awesome story, but our podcasting skills have come a long way. <laughs> so <laughs> withhold judgment. <laughs> Just pay attention At least to I the hope story. So, yeah. <laughs> no, oh my gosh. I've listened to the first episode like semi-recently just to see how our quality was. And we were, we were babies. 
We were yeah. podcasting babies. <laughs> that's for sure. I remember going off on many tangents about Halloween candy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was where Rocket Gate happened. <laughs> Becca loves rockets. I Love think them. they're the worst. <laughs> I actually just got the bag of Halloween candy that we're going to give, give out, out this oh. year, and I made sure there were rockets in it. Yeah, like the chalk of the candy world. Mm-hmm. Okay, today's episode is uh, a little spooky, I guess. I think Becca's part is a little more spooky than my part. Mm -hmm. But Becca's going to tell us all about the disease that almost put the world off of burgers, bovine spongiform encephalopathy, aka mad cow disease. And then I'm going to tell you about the time that the Texas beef industry tried to take down America's sweetheart, Oprah Winfrey. I still can't believe that. It's it's a good story. It's, it's kind of a funny story, honestly. And heartwarming in the end. That's a little foreshadowing. Ooh. <laughs> no, I do remember hearing about this. Mm-hmm. More high level at the time. Yep. But um, I don't even really know how it ended, like what the conclusion was. So, ooh. Well, I'll let you know. I hear. find it weird. I remember this happening too. And we were seven. Okay, maybe we heard about it afterwards. Yeah. Anyways. Or we were just reading the news at age seven. I mean, I loved Oprah. So did I. <laughs> I would watch it every day after school. Same. That and uh, Dr. Degrassi. No, I was Degrassi next gen. Oh, Degrassi. (laughs) Oh. Well, I did like, um, I would do Full House after school a lot. But then I think maybe around grade eight, when I started to mature, I got really into Oprah and Dr. Phil. (laughs) I love that. It's good. It's good. There's a lot of drama. The information in this podcast is for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're interested in medical nutrition therapy or personalized nutrition advice, please talk to a physician or registered dietitian in your area. If you have a history of disordered eating, be advised that nutrition details will be discussed and take the steps you need to protect your recovery journey. All the citations and relevant links for anything mentioned in this episode will be in our show notes on our website, unsavorypodcast.com. This podcast may contain coarse language, mature subject matter, and content of a violent or disturbing nature. Listener discretion is advised. This is an independently produced podcast. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can sign up as a donor through the Patreon link in our bio. If you could rate, review, follow, and share our show with your true crime and food-loving friends, that would really help us out, and we will be forever grateful. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So cattle have been a part of our food chain for thousands and thousands of years. Beef is a good source of protein, iron, vitamin B6, and potassium. And cows also give us milk, which is also very high in nutrients. And it has even been used to reduce or prevent malnutrition. 
across the world, especially in children. And while I don't eat beef, which I feel like I talk about way too much on this <laughs> podcast, um, cows are still responsible for my favorite food, cheese. Mm. So cows are ruminants, which are hooved animals, and they graze pastures, meaning that they're herbivores. They're also able to convert things like grass and hay into enough energy and nutrients because of their unique digestive systems. So unlike humans who have undivided stomachs, cows have stomachs that are divided into four parts. These parts include the rumen, reticulum, omesum, and abomesum, and each part plays a unique role in the breakdown and absorption of the plants to optimize nutrition. And I guess before we get more into this, there are a lot of like scientific words throughout my part. So if any at any point it's not making sense to you, Sarah, okay. just like ask me to clarify. Because a lot of the words are repeated just like throughout different species and stuff like that. But it's a little bit confusing. Okay. Okay. Should I call you out in your pronunciation? No. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> just kidding. Keep that yes, to <laughs> <laughs> Please do, actually. No. <laughs> If you know how to pronounce I had them. To, I Googled before we started recording encephalopathy. Oh, yeah. Look, if you look down in my script right here, I'll highlight it. Oh, yeah. So look <laughs> at that phonetic spelling. It's wild. It's encephalopathy. Yeah. So in the 1960s and 1970s, intensive or factory farming began picking up traction with the increased demand for animal protein. This new agricultural technique was known to be more efficient and to produce more end product, so uh, more than like traditional means of production. With these increased demands, farmers and agricultural businesses were under more pressure to produce. They found that if they increased the protein in cattle feed, the cows would grow more quickly and they could turn out more beef. And this is where the problems began. It's estimated that sometime in the 1970s, infected sheep meat was used in cattle feed in the United Kingdom. So these sheep had a disease known as scrappy or transmissible spongiform encephalopathy, TSE for short, which is what I will be referring to. Yeah, you to never it. have to say encephalopathy again. <laughs> Unfortunately, I do, but <laughs> only like once or twice more. So this disease creates prions in the body. And prions are pathogenic agents, so they're pathogens, but they aren't a virus, bacterium, or a parasite. So it's believed that there are types of abnormal proteins that then force other proteins in the body to abnormally form. The normal form of prion proteins are found in all animals and humans, but in prion disease, these normal prion proteins are converted into protein naceous infectious particles. Nailed it. <laughs> these are what then convert more of our normal prion proteins into prions, eventually damaging the central nervous system, so the, the brain and the spine. So the reason the S in TSE stands for spongiform is because this prion disease literally pokes holes in the brain tissue, making it resemble a sponge. Ooh, that's a bad visual. Yeah, it's Swiss cheese brain. Brutal. Exactly. So the, the food and farming industry were aware of scrappy disease in sheep, which was recognized in the 1700s, but it never jumped species before this, at least not knowingly. So what is thought to have happened was that the cows were forced to eat the infected sheep meat in their feed, 
which created a genetically morphed version of the disease called mad cow disease. Wow, I didn't know that. That's cool. Mm -hmm. It's really, really twisted, but Mm -hmm. I mean, really interesting. So the more sciencey term for mad cow disease is bovine spongiform encephalopathy, or BSE, which is very similar to transmissible spongiform encephalopathy found in sheep, where it causes those sponge-like holes in the brain. Hmm. The disease is degenerative, meaning it ultimately gets worse until it becomes fatal, but it also remains dormant in the host for about five years or so, which is why they didn't start seeing this in the cattle populations until the 1980s. Oh, wow. hmm So in 1986, the first cases of BSE were identified in the United Kingdom. And um, by 1993, there were almost 1,000 new cases every single week, but again, mainly in the UK. By the end of 2015, more than 180,000 cases of BSE had been confirmed in that country, like in the UK, mm-hmm. uh, leading to many herds being put down. Wow. And it's estimated that about 4.4 million cattle were euthanized during this time oh my gosh. in the UK alone. That's really sad. It's so sad. So yeah, it's unfortunate because there was only about 180,000 confirmed cases, mm-hmm. but when you found like a case, I think they would the have to put down the whole herd. Would have to mm-hmm. be euthanized. Yeah, that's really sad. So transmission, it's not airborne and it hasn't even like been found present in the muscle meat of cattle. So you wouldn't find it in a steak and you also wouldn't find it in milk. So it's not transmitted through milk. But the way that the infection spreads is by eating the brain or spinal cord tissue of an infected animal. So this is how it spread from cow to cow, like following it spreading from sheep to cow. So this was through forced cow cannibalism, where the cow gets BSE by eating feed byproducts of another cow infected with BSE. That is twisted. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. It's it's really, really icky. And mm-hmm. just the whole concept of these cows being force-fed their own kind, it's really, really tragic. Mm-hmm. It's really tragic. And just like a little side tangent here, it really got me thinking about like grass-fed beef mm-hmm. because that sounds just so much more humane. So I did a little bit of digging into this. And in the States, the USDA does regulate the term, meaning that um, cattle must be fed either uh, grass, forage, herbs, and cereal grains. Mm-hmm. But in Canada, the definition of grass-fed on food products, it doesn't it's not regulated oh. by our government. So this was what was really challenging is the um, CFIA, like yeah. they are the ones who allowed the term to be used on food packaging labels. Okay. But I searched their website up and down. This is why I was late to our recording today <laughs> to see if I could find any information on the term grass-fed, like the grass-fed claim yeah. on food packaging. And I couldn't find a definition or any real good information on it. Mm, so they approve the term, but there's no guidelines on what has to be met to use that term. Exactly. So you can use it, but you can essentially use it with your own definition. Interesting. So I wonder if they could be considered grass-fed if they've just had some grass. It's possible. Yeah. And I'm not going to like jump to any conclusions because it's also, it's also, it sounds like it's up to the discretion of the farmer or the mm-hmm. organization. Yeah. So 
I think if you were to go and see what that that company's values are, like how mm-hmm. they define grass-fed, then it could potentially be true. Like they could be grass-fed. For sure. 100%. Okay. So it's just like a little bit fishy. And I just, I thought it was very suspect that there was no information on the CFIA website. Yeah, that's this. interesting. Grass-fed beef just sounds so much more, like that's why cows have that fourth stomach, the rumen. That's where they can, you know, they're meant to eat grass. Yeah. Hmm. Future editing, Becca here. After this recording, I did some research into this topic because something wasn't sitting right that Canadians would force cannibalism on their cattle. And it turns out that in 1997, a law was put in place forbidding the use of beef or beef byproducts in cattle feed. This was done in response to the mad cow disease concerns. With that being said, the term grass-fed on Canadian beef products remains undefined by the CFIA or Canadian Food Inspection Agency, So there is no legal definition about what that actually means or how much grass is in their diet. So some of the things other than grass that cows do eat in Canada include things like alfalfa, corn, leaves, hay, barley, clover, oats, and soybeans. And in many countries, it looks like feeding cattle animal byproducts like pork, poultry, and fish is still the norm. So because TSE in sheep had never jumped species prior to this. Scientists didn't really know what to expect with its presence in cattle. But in 1996, so about 10 years after BSE was discovered in cattle, it unfortunately was found in humans and cats. Cats, no. (laughs) Yeah, cats are one of the only other species that has, has caught this. Oh, no. Okay. So again, the variant in humans, it's similar to TSE and BSE, but the variant is called Crucifelt Jacob or Jacob disease or VCJD, which I will be referring to it as <laughs> from now on. <laughs> so this belongs to a general category of brain diseases called proteinopathies. And this category also includes diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and ALS. Mm. VCJD is super rare in humans, though. According to a 2015 research paper that we will link in our show notes, only 229 cases of VCJD have been reported worldwide, with over 77% of those being in the UK. Even those cases outside of the UK were mainly traced back to beef and cattle that were exported from the UK. So it's really just like a UK problem. And only like four cases were ever found in the US and two in Canada. So very rare. Do you know if kritzfeld jakob disease comes only from cows or could it also be genetic? So kritzfeld jakob disease itself encompasses different diseases. Okay. So those ones can be genetic and stuff like that. Okay. But the variant, but so the, the VCJD is specific to mad, mad cow, cow disease. Okay. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah, and just in terms to like the rarity and stuff, I really don't want to downplay the severity of this disease because it is super serious and very, very tragic. And it does the same thing in humans that it does in sheep and cattle where it creates those tiny holes in the brain. And it leads to symptoms like loss of memory and brain function, changes in personality, loss of coordination and slurred speech, vision problems, jerking movements, coma, and ultimately death. And the life expectancy, once a person does start showing symptoms, is about one year. So the prions like really work quickly at changing up your your brain, your proteins. Yeah. That is terrifying. Mm -hmm. 
But by 1995, the cases began declining of bad cow disease. And in 2015, there were actually only two cases reported globally. Changes in feeding protocols and um, border crossing regulations helped protect cattle and stop the spread to humans. But based on what I could find online, cattle can still technically be fed animal parts. And I couldn't find anything more recent on the VCJD cases, which made me think that there haven't really been any any recently, which I'm really hoping is the case. Yeah, me too. Yeah, but it is what it is, right? Like it happened. And mm-hmm. thankfully, we were able to put some protocols in place where it is still very rare. But I think that there are still cows that will get it. It's just mm-hmm. that the monitoring systems and the regulations in place have really helped protect us. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really remember mad cow disease being in the media and like just talking about it with our friends. It's a very, I mean, the name mad cow disease is so sensational and so freaky. And then what Mm -hmm. it actually does, if it does jump to humans is really terrifying. Yeah. Even this, it's so rare, like the number of cases compared to the number of cows in the world and the number of humans that eat beef is so, so, so tiny, but it's the shock value, like the fear of it all is is really um, freaky. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, the reason it is so rare is because you don't get it from the actual meat itself, right? Like the yeah. muscle meat. So it is more so not from the organs, but again, like the brain, I guess mm-hmm. yeah, the brain and um, spine. spinal cord. So even ground beef technically won't have it for the most part, unless there was maybe some mixing of. Yeah. Extra parts. Mm hmm. Okay, okay. Do you have a Mexico drug dog story? <laughs> <laughs> that was <laughs> that was a, a TBD, but I can definitely okay. tell you. Does it fit right um, now? Yeah, for those like- of you listening, <laughs> in my notes, I had Mexico drug dog story dot 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 uh, <laughs> at the end of my script. So, <laughs> yes, I can tell I'm you. I'm waiting. <laughs> no, but essentially, like what I was going to <laughs> to tell tell you was. Like, I do remember going across to, like, the American border and them asking if you had any meat in your car. Yes. Do you remember yes, that? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I was always like, that's such a weird question. <laughs> but it's because of this. And um, I just had this story about when Dan and I were going across the border into Mexico, like, pre-COVID. And he had these beef jerky things in his bag. Oh, yeah. And we hadn't even crossed. Like, we we hadn't gone through the border crossing yet where they ask you what you have in your bag, but he mm-hmm. had them as a snack in his, his carry-on. And we're in Mexico, and there's this, like, big drug dog walking through the aisle, and it comes up to Dan <laughs> oh my God. and stops. And I was like, oh, my God, what's What did happen? you bring? <laughs> what did you bring? And it was just the dog wanted some beef. Oh, my gosh, that's so funny. <laughs> he just smelt the beef and wanted a treat. <laughs> did they take it from you? Yeah, they did. I hope they gave they it to did. the dog. I hope so, too. He deserved <laughs> Little it. Little treats. But I almost <laughs> my pants. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Oh, my gosh. That was awesome. Okay. Perfect segue and great job setting the stage for how freaky, I keep using the word freaky, but how freaky mad cow disease was to the public. Because mm-hmm. that's going to, you know, that's going to really help build the energy for my story, too. Okay. So we already talked about in the start, how much we both love Oprah. Love her. And you're still going to love her by the end of the story. Maybe okay, even good. more if it's even possible. 
So to put together this episode, I used an article by Eamon Bathija in the Texas Tribune called The Time Oprah Winfrey Beefed with the Texas Cattle Industry. And that was a very helpful and well-written article. So if you want to learn more about anything I mention in this episode, I definitely recommend checking that out, linked in our show notes, of course. And another article by Larry Lemons and Ashley Landrum in the conversation called Mad Cows, Oprah Winfrey, and Communicating the Science in a High-Profile Court Case. And Larry Lemons actually covered the case real-time when it was happening as well. So he's got a lot of great articles out there. Cool. So on April 16th, 1996, an episode of the Oprah Winfrey show called Dangerous Food went live. In the name of good research, I tried so hard to find this episode so that I could watch it myself, of course, but it aired at a time when not everything was uploaded online, and apparently Oprah's team has made great efforts to scrub it from the face of the earth, so I couldn't find it anywhere. It doesn't exist anymore. (laughs) But this episode featured a discussion between Oprah Winfrey and a cattle rancher turned vegan advocate named Howard Lyman speculating about the possibility that cattle in the United States could become infected with bovine spongiform encephalopathy or mad cow disease. And I'm going to call it mad cow disease because it's a lot easier to say. Mm -hmm. And after all, it was, you know, it was pretty reasonable that they were having this conversation because only about one month before this episode aired, the British health authorities had confirmed that the consumption of animal tissues contaminated with the pathogen that causes mad cow disease, was responsible for this new version of Kurtzfeldt-Jakob disease, like Becca just told us. So during this episode, Lyman argued that the risk in the United States of a mad cow epidemic was something to be concerned about, largely due to the widespread practice in the United States at the time of adding leftover animal parts that were not really ideal for human consumption, so like fat and other tissues that we don't typically eat, into cattle feed as a cost-effective source of nutrition for the cows. So that's pretty much exactly what Becca was just telling us about, cow parts being added to cow feed. And after hearing Lyman's you know, information sharing and prediction about mad cow disease coming to the U.S., Oprah declared... Now, doesn't that concern you all a little bit right there, hearing that? It has just stopped me cold from eating another burger. I'm stopped. Over the next couple years, Oprah Winfrey would come to rue the day she uttered those infamous words. Because in the days after that episode aired, the cattle industry experienced a dramatic drop in cattle prices. Wow. Wayne Purcell, a Virginia Tech professor, later testified that prices dropped from $61.90 to $55 per hundredweight, which is 100 pounds. So about a 20% drop in price. That's wild because she wasn't even really saying Mm -hmm. you should stop eating burgers or beef. Totally. She's saying, I'm stopping. She's saying that she's stopped. Oh, the influence. Oh, the influence. Exactly. So I think the statement that Oprah made seems pretty harmless, and it definitely wouldn't be that big of a deal if 
you or I spoke those words <laughs> or the average citizen spoke those words. But of course, Oprah Winfrey is not your average citizen. She's one of the most beloved celebrities of all time. Yeah. Like I said, I talk about how I don't eat beef all the time on this podcast, which I'm probably going to stop doing. Y- you need but, to. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I don't think the beef industry is going to come after me. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we'll talk about it. Uh, okay. 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 <laughs> I'll bite my tongue. And there is actually something called the Oprah effect, which is when Oprah would endorse a product on her show or have a special guest on her show. And then that product or person would go on to achieve financial success. Mm -hmm. So, you know, basically whatever Oprah endorses turns to gold. And Oprah turned many fashion and lifestyle products into multi-million dollar companies. She turned books into bestsellers, and she even made full successful careers for some of her regular guests like Dr. Oz and Dr. Phil. Unfortunately. Unfortunately, especially Dr. Oz. So when Oprah proclaimed that she would never eat another burger due to her concern that there was a potential for a mad cow disease outbreak in the United States, her words had an actual impact. They directly impacted beef sales and they indirectly impacted the livelihoods of Texas cattle ranchers. Or at least that's what members of the Texas cattle industry claimed when they filed a lawsuit against Oprah Winfrey under the Texas law, the False Disparagement of Perishable Food Products Act, alleging more than $10.3 million in damages. I'm shook. I know. The statement she made seems so harmless to me. Yeah. Like, she's a talk show host. As we were talking about, we like we remember this happening, but I don't remember what she had said. And it yeah. just, yeah, it seems so unimpactful. I know. I know. It's just an opinion. She's a talk show host. She's talking. She's sharing her feelings. That's what she does for a living. Mm-hmm. Um, she was having a conversation with a gentleman about his opinions too. And like you said earlier, she didn't say don't eat burgers anymore. She simply reacted real time to what she was hearing as she's done with countless guests on mm-hmm. many different topics. Yeah. So how could a flippant comment like the one that she made on that fateful episode actually be tried in a court of justice? especially in America, the land of free speech. To me, it seems a bit backwards. And to fully understand how this lawsuit was even possible, I'm going to give you a little background on veggie libel laws, also known as food disparagement laws. Mm. Okay. Food disparagement laws attempt to provide protection for producers of perishable food products from accusations that suggest their product is unfit for human consumption. And food disparagement laws can be found in multiple states, including South Dakota, Georgia, North Dakota, Oklahoma, Ohio, Mississippi, Louisiana, Idaho, Florida, Colorado, Arizona, Alabama, and of course, Texas. And I believe most of those states are pretty reliant on agriculture industries. Mm Mm-hmm. And since the creation of the first food disparagement law in Colorado in 1991, these laws have been the subject of much debate. So each state's food disparagement laws are slightly different, and I'm not going to get into the details of each law and how they vary state to state. If you do want to read more about that, the article by Eamon Bethija that I mentioned at the start has all those details for you. 
But in Texas, where Winfrey and Lyman were accused, the food disparagement law holds people liable for damages if they spread information that is false about a perishable food product and the person who made the claims either knew or should have known that it was false. And false here is defined as not based on reasonable and reliable scientific facts or data. Okay? Mm -hmm. You're following? I'm following, It's not too law-y. No, it's not too law-y. And I feel like I want to talk about this, but I feel like you're probably going (laughs) to... I feel feel like you're probably going to cover my questions. Yeah, I have like a full thought piece at the end and we can talk about like how this makes us feel because it brought up feelings for me. (laughs) And also, this is kind of the kicker, is that the law doesn't provide any relief or financial support for the defendant if the suit filed against them is unsuccessful. So you could get accused, you have to cover all your legal expenses. And if, you know, in the end, it's like, oh, what they said was fine. The lawsuit doesn't go through or whatever. You're not guilty. Your foot in the bill. Wow. Yeah. And so it was Oprah and this ex-farmer. Yeah. Who were both accused. So it was them together. Yeah. Wow. So basically, you can be sued for speaking out against a perishable product if what you say is not true. And as a true crime and food podcaster that covers a lot of scandal in the food industry, uh, my gut reaction is that these laws seem a bit like an infringement on free speech. Yeah. And as I thought about them a little bit more and did more research, they also seem like a harsh reaction to the widespread problem of misinformation and disinformation. And we do know that, you know, we covered the food babe in episode two and misinformation about certain ingredients can have huge impacts on industry, right? So I see that industries are trying to protect themselves. These laws are in place to protect industry, but also I think we should be able to have these discussions about food products. I agree. These laws in particular only apply to perishable products because when it comes to perishable products, Changes in the market can lead to significant financial losses in a short period of time because the food will become unusable. It'll spoil, right? right? So the food disparagement laws and lawsuits only apply to perishable products at this point in time. So there is some logic for these laws, and they were actually created in response to a lawsuit filed against the CBS network for its 1989 broadcast on 60 Minutes of a documentary entitled A is for Apple. Again, I couldn't find this anywhere. It's been scrubbed from the face of the internet. I guess it did air in 1989, so maybe that makes sense. But the report was based on a study by the National Resources Defense Council, or the NRDC, which claimed that children in the U.S. had a higher risk of cancer because apples from the U.S. were sprayed with diminozide at the time, more commonly called Alar, which is a known carcinogen. After the report, the Washington apple growers experienced devastating economic losses and sued CBS and the NRDC who had done the research. But the Washington Apple Growers Association were unable to provide evidence that the claims made in the report were false. And so they ultimately lost the lawsuit And this is important because the earlier variations of the food disparagement laws put the burden of proof on the plaintiff or the corporation or the industry to show that the defendants 
criticisms were actually false, but later versions would put the burden of proof on the defendant. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And this makes me think about the subway. So yes. This is mainly in the U.S., obviously, but uh-huh. um, the subway, like, chicken scandal in, totally. in Canada where, mm-hmm. was it a CB, CBC, CBC yep. marketplace uh, episode mm-hmm. talked about the subway chicken yes. not being fully chicken. Yeah. And now Subway is allowed to, like, sue. Yes. I believe, as of, like, 2021. Sue for libel? I think so. I would have to look up the yeah, I don't the know. articles to get the, the proper terminology. <laughs> if you want to hear more about the Subway Marketplace scandal, go listen to the Extra Cheese episode that we did back in February titled Anything But Tuna Subway Scandal. But it's interesting. And there's still like you can be held accountable for saying false information, especially in the media, mm-hmm. but not through a food disparagement law, I believe. Okay. Okay, so the financial losses experienced by the Washington apple growers after this report aired was a wake-up call for agriculture and food corporations. So it was clear that public opinions and consumer advocates could seriously harm their financial interests. And so in 1992, the American Feed Industry Association, the AFIA, drafted a model food disparagement law that they promoted to state legislators And it included some variation of the provision that a disparaging statement may be deemed false if it's not based on reasonable and reliable scientific inquiry, facts, or data. Okay. So some variation of this update was adopted by some of the states with food disparagement laws. And I am going to grossly oversimplify this, but this essentially put the burden of proof on the defendant to prove that their statement was based on evidence. But as we know, science is constantly evolving. Sometimes statements are made that might not be true. Maybe the body of evidence doesn't exist yet. Maybe someone's making a joke or just, you know, chit-chatting. I don't know. Or as with mad cow disease, the public was watching this sensation unfold real time through the media. Right. The internet wasn't even widely used at this time. So they were getting their information through the media, which, as we know... They want good headlines. (laughs) They call it mad cow disease. You know, it's Mm -hmm. very sensational. So there are only actually a handful of food disparagement lawsuits that have been filed in the United States. And besides the Oprah case, which I'm going to get to in just a second, another of the most notable is a 2012 lawsuit filed by Beef Products Incorporated against the ABC network about pink slime. (laughs) Do you remember pink slime? Yeah, because it's basically like super ground beef to the Mm -hmm. point where it becomes like a more slime-like consistency, right? Yeah, it looks like a marshmallow, like a pink marshmallow. (laughs) It's exactly that. So it's the meaty remains of butchered cows that are treated with ammonia and then pulverized to produce a mixture of meat and fat, lovingly termed pink slime based off its appearance, which is exactly that, like a pink slime. (laughs) (laughs) It's also known as lean, finely textured beef, and it's higher in fat. So many burger companies at the time would add it to their burgers as an additive. And in 2012, it was being used by McDonald's and Burger Kings and even in school lunch programs all across the United States. And it is safe. It's just kind of gross to look at. Yeah, I'm curious to know what the types of remains 
Yeah. That are added to it. Like, it is, is it all, like, meat-type remains? Or, like, meat organs, and too? Fat. Yeah. Fact check. We can fact check pink slime. I'm sure the deets are out there. Okay, pink slime is made from connective tissue and fat trimmings that are simmered and then spun in a centrifuge to separate the fat before it's treated with ammonium hydroxide. So in 2017, ABC actually agreed to settle the suit for an undisclosed amount, but they did not apologize and they insisted that their reporting had been accurate. So those two cases, the Alar case and the Pink Slime case, are two of the most well-known instances of the food disparagement laws being used in a lawsuit. And now I'm going to tell you about the most famous one of all. Yay. (laughs) So we're back in December of 1997. It's been about a year and a half since the Dangerous Food episode went live and Oprah's famous words were heard across the nation. And just to refresh your memory, her famous quote was... It has just stopped me cold from eating another burger. I'm stopped. And her words were actually kind of foreshadowing because in June of 1997, this is about six months before she's slapped with the lawsuit, the United States Department of Agriculture announced a ban on the use of leftover beef and lamb in feed produced for cows, Mm -hmm. which, as you shared earlier, is how mad cow disease was spread between cows. Yeah, and I want to clarify, sorry, just quickly. Yeah. I did say, I mentioned in my part that, like, the remains of other animals can be still used in cow feed. I don't know if that's specific to the U.S. So Mm. what you're saying here might be how it works based on USDA standards. Yeah, maybe. This is from 1997. Okay. When the lawsuit happened. And so, like, this ban, the USDA saying, we're stopping adding this to cow feed kind of suggests that maybe Oprah was onto something and that there was a risk of mad cow disease coming to the United States, given that the USDA was banning this practice. But even so, that didn't stop a group of high-profile cattle industry executives from slapping Oprah and Lyman with a lawsuit, alleging that they had lost over $10.3 million due to her comments. And the suit was filed in Texas. This lawsuit kickstarted one of the most high-profile court cases in history, and certainly the largest to come out of Amarillo, Texas, a small town of 170,000 people in which nearly everyone who lived there was connected to the cattle industry in some way. Oprah's trial was quite literally taking place in beef country, which of course raised concerns over how the defense attorneys would be able to successfully defend Oprah and Lyman in a city where nearly everyone has some investment in beef. Oprah, being the innovative queen that she is, used her social status and fame to her advantage. And she didn't just visit Amarillo for the duration of the trial. She moved her entire show there. And she really played up the whole, like, being on trial in Amarillo. She wasn't actually allowed to talk about the trial, but she would wear a cowboy hat. She used her platform to highlight the culture and the life in Amarillo. And the locals loved it. And it was a bit of a media frenzy. So inside the courtroom, celebrity sightings were common, including Oprah's dear friend, Maya Angelou. Outside the courtroom, animal rights activists traded insults with local restaurateurs that would set up barbecues and grill burgers right outside the courthouse. So it just, like, 
I just can't imagine the energy in Amarillo with Oprah coming in this like small Texas farming town. Well, it's not even that small, 170,000, but like, you know what I mean? This town that Mm -hmm. doesn't see people like Oprah coming in very often. And then she brings the whole show and she's highlighting their town and great strategy on her part. Absolutely. I can see how it can spark some some drama. (laughs) For sure. So the trial itself was about six weeks long. And at the start of the trial, the town was divided. So there were these awful bumper stickers that could be seen around town saying, the only mad cow in Texas is Oprah Winfrey, Mm. which is so rude. Not okay. Fat shaming the the defendant, which is not cool. But the more time that Oprah spent in Amarillo, the locals couldn't help but love her. So she was bringing a lot of positive attention to their small city. And eventually, the sales of Amarillo Loves Oprah t-shirts began to skyrocket. Aw, you can't help but love Oprah. I know. They probably just hadn't seen her show before. Totally. And like these people, I feel like maybe they were, you know, they wanted to hate Oprah. But by the end, they were like, ah, you have to love her. Um, So Charles Babcock was Oprah's lawyer for the trial, and he was tasked with the difficult challenge of convincing the Amarillo jury that Oprah Winfrey was innocent. And Babcock was quoted as saying, when we saw the 60 people who were called in for jury service, there wasn't one of them that wasn't connected to the cattle industry in some way. So yeah, I was concerned. And to help prepare Oprah for her trial, Babcock brought in a well-respected jury consultant named Dr. Phil McGraw. And Oprah was so impressed with Dr. McGraw's work that she offered him a guest spot on her show and eventually his own show, The Dr. Phil Show. Wait. Yes. He was a jury Jury consultant. consultant. Yeah. So he has a PhD in psychology and worked with lawyers and like witnesses and defendants to prepare them for trial. And he worked with Oprah, and she loved him, and she gave him the show. Wow. I know. I did not know that this is where it all began. I knew that would shock you. That's why I didn't tell you in advance. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, isn't that cool? Yeah, that's really interesting. So both Oprah's lawyer, Babcock, and Lyman's lawyer, Barry Peterson, were faced with the difficult task of communicating the science of mad cow disease to the jury and to the media. And eventually to the public, which, as we know, Becca, it can be really difficult to communicate challenging scientific topics in a way that is both easily understood, but also interesting enough to hold the media and the public's attention. And this trial actually serves as a case study into the media's attempts at clarifying the science of mad cow disease in the midst of a sensational high-profile trial. Yeah, I feel like even my opening trying to mm-hmm. explain the science of mad cow disease was probably a little bit confusing. I think you a did bit a complex. great job. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> it is tough. I don't know. I Sometimes I feel like when we start our research for things, I'm like so overwhelmed by science-y stuff. And then I just have mm-hmm. to kind of write it out in the simplest terms. And then, you know, it's just tricky. Yeah, it is tricky. And I, But I feel like at this time too, there was less known about mad cow disease than there is mm-hmm. now. So it would have been even more challenging to communicate to others. Yes, totally. So Oprah didn't actually testify until towards the end of her trial, but by the time she did, she had won the town's heart. 
So on February 26, 1998, the jury voted unanimously in favor of Oprah and Lyman, deciding that the discussion had by Oprah and Lyman did not constitute libel. Oprah was quoted as saying, I will continue to use my voice. I believed from the beginning this was an attempt to muzzle that voice. I come from a people who have struggled and died in order to have a voice in this country, and I refuse to be muzzled. No. You know. And then as Oprah exited the courthouse that day to a crowd of cheering supporters, she said, My reaction is that free speech not only lives, it rocks. (laughs) Just love her. Now, you might be thinking that the Texas cattleman who had filed the suit would be disappointed in the outcome, but they actually viewed the case as a success because it gave them a very public platform to deliver their message. So after the ruling, the primary plaintiff, Paul Engler, who owned a feed company in Texas, was quoted as saying, we do believe that we have made one very strong point, very emphatically, very fair to everyone. U.S. beef is safe. And considering that there were only ever a very small amount of cases of mad cow disease in the USA, that statement is pretty true. Yeah. And I don't think that any of the cases were necessarily linked to beef that came from the U.S. The majority of them were linked to cases of beef coming from the UK. UK. Yeah. So food disparagement claims have actually never prevailed in court. So then none of these lawsuits have actually won. But that doesn't mean they aren't serving their intended purpose. I even found that during this research, I was thinking that we have to be really careful about what we say on this podcast and how we word things because if we were to get sued, we'd have to A, foot that bill, and we're still students. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But also, we always do our best to take an evidence-based approach. We really, really try and always try to find the best sources so that we can back up our statements and, of course, share factual information. But the fact remains that corporations do have a lot of power and a lot of money. And there are alleged instances that I read about while doing this research in which individuals who are, for example, writing a book have been sent threatening letters from Mm. corporate attorneys and had to take chunks out of their book and, you know, completely rewrite chapters and things like that. So I find it interesting to think about the consequences that this sort of law could be having on free speech uh, and corporate accountability if people are too scared or financially unable to challenge a large corporation in court to speak freely on these topics. Right. And that makes me even think about why I was unable to find information on like specific claims on mm-hmm. like meat products, on totally. beef products, on a Canadian government website. Yeah. Not saying that there's anything weird going on there, but it makes you think. It does make you think because you were trying to find factual information. I was. And you couldn't. And I could not find like the Oprah episode and A is for Apple. Like that, they do not exist on the internet. Oh my but goodness. they aired according to, you know, the different journalists that I read their articles. But, you know, I'd like to watch them. Yeah. Yeah. Same. When I was doing this, I had like a moment of anxiety where I was like, I wonder if we said anything really bad. We like we really take, I think, a leveled, reasoned, evidence-based as possible approach. And yeah. I feel like we don't, you know, we talk about the food industry, but we don't hate on the food industry. Like the food industry 
we need it. It provides us with massive quantities of food to feed this growing population. Like it's, it's a beast, but it's one that we rely on very heavily and it's important. So I try not to be like hypercritical of food industry practices and things like that. Even if they seem like, for example, like just as a human that exists in this world, the idea of feeding cows cow parts is a bit unsettling. Yeah, that's definitely. never that's never what they would eat. If it was to be a cow in the wild roaming naturally, they wouldn't be eating other cows. That wouldn't happen, right? Right. So that is unsettling. And then I am able to at least see why the cattle industry would use a cheap and already available source of nutrition, protein, and fat mm-hmm. and make use of every part of the cow to reduce waste, like there are, you know, two sides to everything. But the point of my little rant here is that these laws make me feel uneasy and definitely a little bit nervous about like speaking about scandal sometimes in the food industry. For sure. But I think our perspective, it comes from a place of wanting there to be more transparency so that there can be more trust in the food system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, I don't think that we ever speak about topics trying to create fear. It's more about trying to create transparency and just like consumer knowledge, having consumer knowledge about these specific food products and the history of what what has happened in our food system. Because I do think that that's very important. Absolutely. And also serving to reduce fear. Like we talk about these things that have happened and we always finish off with like the changes. Mm -hmm. What's changed? What did we learn from this? And how did things go forward? Yeah, I feel like there's also, I mean, there's a huge issue in just like knowing where your food comes from, where your Mm -hmm. meat comes from specifically. I feel like you do kind of come from a place of privilege if you're able to only eat grass-fed or organic meat in the U.S. or or what have you. So yeah, there's, there's so many issues around that as well. But I mean, we're doing the best we can. Yeah. And for now, Oprah remains queen of the United States. And we, you and I, Becca, will continue as always to make this podcast using the best available evidence that we can. Full stop. Full stop. So Becca, do you have a question for me for next week? I do. You ready? Mm -hmm. Okay. So other than Rotharianism, which you covered, I guess, two episodes back. Yeah. Are there any other food-related cults that you're familiar with? Um, well, like most common diets, <laughs> but like <Yes>. cults, <laughs> cults, like true cults. The only one I can think of is like Jonestown and the Kool-Aid. Oh, yeah. And Kool-Aid's a food, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's something you consume. I'll mm-hmm. take it. What about you? I mean, good answer, but I'm actually not going to tell you because it'll give away the episode. But no, that was a good guess. It's okay. not what we'll be covering next episode, but it will get you thinking. Okay. Food-related cults. Food-related cults. Cool. I'm excited. Love a good cult story. <laughs> Same. All right. All right, everyone. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Unsavory. You can find all the references and materials used to put this episode together in our show notes at unsavorypodcast.com. This is an independently produced podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would rate, review, follow, and share our show with your true crime and food-loving friends. 
If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can sign up as a donor through our Patreon link in our bio. To keep up to date with the podcast, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Unsavory Podcast. If you have an idea for an episode or segment, email us at unsavorypod at gmail.com. This podcast was recorded and edited by Earworm Radio. We highly recommend their services for all of your podcasting needs. You can learn more about them at earwormradio.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.